on today's message from Harvest Church of God. You're either saved or you're not. The blood of Jesus either did the work for you or it didn't. You either ask him to forgive you for your sins or you didn't. And if you've accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, then that's sufficient and your name is in the book and you're on your way to heaven. I want to tell you, there may be a thorn, there may be a messenger of Satan, there may be all kind of hell breaking loose, but I want to tell you, if you'll just remember that God is gracious and God has provided, and as God is, so am I, then the fire can't burn you and the flood can't overflow you. Whoever you are in God, if you'll just believe that God is, God will do his part. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to read along a little bit, 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for the sacredness of this moment. And thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which we invite to come into this room, O Lord, and touch your word that it would be a blessing to the hearers of the word, that you would touch us, O God, with instruction in righteousness, encouragement in the spirit, guidance for our feet, worship for our lips. We pray, O God, that you would have your way these next few moments spent together in the word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. amen. The history of the church changed drastically when a man who was known as Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a university town. There were a lot of people that were educated at Tarsus. One of the greatest divinical schools and rabbinical schools that there was was in Tarsus. So there was a teacher there, a professor that was there that was famous all over the world. His name was Dr. Gamaliel. Dr. Gamaliel. He had a student who was a young, enthusiastic Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a law keeper, a Sabbath keeper, a food abstainer. He kept all the feast days, had the prayer shawl, had the phylactery, did all the things Jewish people do, and uh, was really offended at the life of the Lord Jesus, was really upset and went to war with that uh, notion and that thought of Christianity. But on a road to Damascus, going to arrest some people for being Christian and evangelizing, he had an encounter. Have you had an encounter? Don't know what that means, a meeting. Have you had a meeting, a time when you came face to face with your maker and you made a decision? The apostle Paul was... The Bible said he was knocked off of his donkey when he talked about it one time. Another one said that there was a great light that shined and he fell to the ground and was blinded by the light. And realizing he was in the presence of deity, he said, Who art thou, Lord, and what would thou have me do? Boy, those are two great questions, aren't they? You got to know who he is. And you got to know what he wants you to do. Who art thou, Lord, and what do you want me to do? 
And the Lord told him to go on into Damascus to a street called Straight. A lot of preaching right there. Street called Straight. And find one whose name is Ananias. And he will tell you what you're going to do. And so when he got to Ananias' house on the street called Straight in the city of Damascus, God had already talked to Ananias. And he said, one Saul of Tarsus is coming. And having known the reputation and known the personality, he was filled with fear. He said, oh God, surely not. Is he coming to arrest? Is he coming to take me prisoner? Is he going to persecute me? Am I going to be locked up? Am I going to be beaten? And he said, no, he's not coming like that. He's coming as a vessel of mine. And he said, when you see him, you're to pray for, pray for him. And said, the scales will fall off of his eyes and his healing will come in his eyes and he'll be able to see. And he said, and then he will receive the Holy Ghost. Wow. Well, he went and hid himself and prepared for this new role. In fact, I think the Bible said it was about 14 years before one Barnabas carried him up to Jerusalem to present him to the brethren. And their first uh, response was fear. And they, they knew Paul. They knew his reputation. And they were frightened of him and were afraid of what he might do to the Christian church because up until that time, the church was mainly Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. The head of the church at Jerusalem was James. He was Jewish, very strong Jewish. Peter was the outspoken leader of the disciples, and he was very much Jewish. So the whole thing was very Jewish back then. And uh, even Jesus said, for salvation is of the Jews. In other words, he meant that's the stream through which salvation would, would flow. But something happened with Peter, the Jewish preacher, the Jewish evangelist who was on the rooftop and he was praying over at Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. And the Bible said he fell into a trance and he saw an Arkansas Razorback. <laughs> and the Lord said, Arise, kill, and eat. Well, all of us know that Jews don't eat pork. And they think that there is nothing more disgusting than pork chops and ham. So they just don't eat pork. I'm glad they have that opinion and we don't. Because I love some ribs, don't you? And the Bible said, God said to him, Why callest thou anything that I make unclean? And the Bible said about that time there was a knock at the door. So they went and opened the door, and it was some messengers, and they'd come to find Peter. Why did they do that? Because God told them to. Go find Peter. He's over at Simon the Tanner's house, and uh, he'll know the rest of the story when you get there. And they said, we're from Cornelius' house. And we're, we're servants. He's a devout man. He prays. He knows the Scripture. He knows salvation. And he knows God. And he wants to know more about God. And he says that God told him to send for you. You're to go and preach at his house to all of his household. And Peter said, let me get my coat. And down to Cornelius' house they went. In Acts 
10.44, while Peter preached, while Peter spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. How do you know the Holy Spirit fell on them? For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So Peter got his eyes open that these are Romans. These people are, are Italians. They're not good Jewish folk like me. They don't have a prayer shawl, and they don't go to a temple, and they don't have a day of atonement, and they don't have a day of Purim, and they don't know about the booths and the Feast of Tabernacles and all of those things. How in the world had they come to know about salvation? And God, what are you up to saving these Gentiles? Well, that question got really blown up. And so Peter found himself up at uh, Antioch. And the Bible said he started preaching the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. No, he preached Jesus and the crucifixion. I preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's the one that said, I preached Jesus and the resurrection. Wow. So Peter had preached to them about salvation and how that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, a vicarious dying for everybody. And that's what theologians call Arminianism. That's what you are if you believe God can save anybody. Amen. That means you're Arminian. That means that you believe that the Lord Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, which includes everybody, no matter what their race or their ethnicity or color of their skin or their background or what. No matter what, Jesus died for everybody. And every person is a soul for whom Jesus died. So the Bible says that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Wow. So then we have this big conference that's called the Jewish meeting, the first council at Jerusalem. And these Jewish people are saying, is it possible that Gentiles could have salvation, that these people at Antioch are believing that, uh, the same thing that we do about Jesus. And, and, and the church has to decide whether we're, we're going to take a stand here about this. And the Bible said, and Peter kind of got over with the, the Jewish brethren and the uh, aristocracy in the church at Jerusalem, and he began telling them, I don't know about these, these people and all of this. I just And the Bible said, and this little man who had big character, stood up and said, Peter, I rebuke you to your face. Now, you've got to have some guts to do that. You better have some real clout. You better have a lot of gunpowder in your pistol. If you're going to tell Peter, I rebuke you to your face, what was the rebuke? The rebuke was, you've been up there eating with those folks. You've been up there preaching with them. You've been up there praying with them and staying in their homes and their families, and now you're going to act like you don't even know them? Hello out there. You didn't know the early church had that kind of thing. You thought that church problems is just recent, huh? No, they had fusses too. 
And the Bible said, well, uh, what are we going to do? And Paul said, I don't know about you guys, but said, Barnabas, if you want to go with me, I'm about to leave on a missionary journey to get all the Gentiles saved that I can get saved. I'm going to go up, up there and take my first missionary journey, and I'm going to see if we can do something about establishing churches and reaching people for God. And I, you just call me from now on the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, you don't know what kind of real intestinal fortitude that took for him to make that stance. And I'm so glad he did because when he assumed that role from their own, the whole Acts of the Apostles and the New Testament is slanted more toward Pauline fault and activity than it is Petrine or Joanine. All of that is secondary to Pauline theology from that point. In fact, he started writing letters to these churches, and that's what you're holding in your lap right there. Thirteen epistles, those are churches that Paul established or sent somebody to establish and got them going in the faith. And one of those churches is the Corinthian church. And Paul's relationship with them was at times really, really good. At other times, it was quite toxic. Because they were kind of in and out, over and under, up and down. They kind of had a history of getting off course. <laughs> well, they had more problems than that. They had such factions among them that the Bible said they divided up. And one would say, I am of Paul. Another would say, I am of Peter. Another would say, I only follow Jesus. So you've got all these factions in the church. And Paul wrote them the first Corinthian letter, and he says to them these words. He said, who is Paul? Or who is Cephas? Who is Peter? Who is that? They're nothing. They're nothing. One waters, the other plants, and God gives the increase. That's the way this thing works. God is the one that is responsible for the sending and the preaching and planting. All of that belongs to God. And what he's saying is, Peter is nothing. Paul is nothing. None of these uh, uh, factions, uh, you're, you're getting it all wrong. It's all of God. It's not of Paul. It's of God. Well, the Bible said they then got into this rippet about paying Paul. And Paul told the church, no, you're not going to pay me anything. I will not be paid, patronized. Is that it? That's the, that's the word, patron. I will not be patronized. No, sir. You're not going to pay me to preach. That ain't going to happen. You know why? Because those factions were so strong that if a person was for sale, and you could persuade him by money and paying and patronage, then he would have to do what you say because you're the one who has the purse strings. And Paul said, I'm not going to encumber myself to be your patron because I'm not going to fall into that trap of becoming a puppet on a string and you threatening me because you pay me some compensation. He said, that won't happen. 
Now, that wasn't a fundamental thing with him, but it was at Corinth. Because of the Philippians, the Bible said they ministered to his necessities. Uh, of, of the Galatians, he said, thank you for your offerings that you've sent to support my ministry. Uh, of all the other churches, it was different. He accepted gifts and offerings and things like that, but not from Corinth. Why? Because they were so factious that they fought one another by the strength of their popularity in the church. That's not a new tactic, is it? Are y'all still awake? So Paul then has this relationship with Corinth, and he writes what is called the painful letter. The painful letter is painful because he kind of pulls them out front and says, what's going on here? Because there was one prominent official in the church that was carrying on an adulterous affair with his father's wife. Paul even said it is commonly reported that fornication is a big problem in this church, that there is fornication among you. And Paul just really said, brethren, that ought not to be, and that don't need to happen. Repent and get forgiveness for that because that's not what Christian faith is about. Whew. So then all these factions they got this irritability toward Paul because no one likes for anybody to uncover your dirty deeds. Come on, somebody. Amen. No one likes to be called out, right? So, brother, when he called these factions out and he called out all of this wrongdoing and stuff, then they turned the tables on him and they started fussing at him. Well, look at him. He's a little old worm of a man. My Lord, he's all humped over and he's a, a weak guy, stumbles along and all this. And my Lord, if we're going to have a leader around here, we could at least, at least get somebody that's strong physically. And that eye disease of his, that's embarrassing when we invite people to come to our church and hear our pastor preach and he gets up there and he's wiping his eyes the whole time. Boy, they were just giving him down the country. They got on him and said, and when it comes to being an orator, Brother, you can't preach a lick. Brother, when it came to oratorical skills, they told him, now, thank God Paul is a strong person. And there were, were people all the time that were telling him what a blessing his ministry was to them and how well he preached and how, how they marveled at the things. Even at Mars Hill, the Bible said they were astonished at his oratorical skills. He knew all of the irony and he knew all of the, the, the boxes that you've got to check to do the public speaking thing. He was actually a very good orator. But why bother with the truth? It messes up a good story. So just go ahead and sling your mud and tell your lies. So that's what they did. And they victimized him, and they just vilified and was so mean-spirited, accused him of embezzlement, accused him of uh, carrying on an adulterous affair, immorality. They just brought all kind of accusations against him. But Paul wouldn't stand for any of that. He stood his ground and stood in all of those things. And while they discredited him and discredited his ministry and all that he did, he wrote this second letter 
after the painful letter, after their true colors were shown, he writes this one back, trying to salvage all that he could of that church. And he starts writing to them about his relationship in the kingdom of God and what he does in the kingdom of God. Listen to what he said. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. What he was saying was, uh, I'm, I'm secure in who I am. I'm comfortable in my own skin. All these things that you guys are, are purporting against me, he said, I know who I am in Christ, and I know what God has done in my ministry. There are many churches and many souls and many lives that are changed, and it, it just speaks for itself. It is not expedient for me to go through this glorying and tell you all the things I've done. He said, that's not necessary. But he said, I come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. When you see parenthetical expressions that are in your scriptures, that's not part of the original manuscript. That's what the editors and the redactors added in there. What's in parenthesis is not part of the original uh, manuscript. Listen to what he's saying. Whether in the body or not, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. Now, that brings us to a place where you got to do some explaining. He, he says, I was caught, it was 14 years ago that this event took place. Now, have any of you ever heard of Usher's book of chronology? Nobody. It's a good one for you to get. It chronologically puts everything in order in the New Testament. In Usher's book of chronology, it teaches us that 14 years before the writing of this letter, Paul was stoned and left for dead at Lystra. Woo. Stoned and left for dead. Well, perhaps he did die. I know when somebody's dead, don't you? I can go over there to them and put that mirror over their nose and mouth, and if it don't fog up, they're not breathing. In fact, I could look closely and see their stomach if it goes up and down their chest. And if it don't come up and down, then they're not breathing. If I know they're not responding in any way, I pretty well know I believe they knew he was dead. And he said, 14 years before I wrote this letter, I was stoned and left for dead at Lystra. Now, I believe that when a person dies, his soul and his spirit leaves this house. Do you believe that? Give me a Presbyterian amen. There you go. I believe the soul and the spirit separates from this house and goes to be in the direct presence of God. I believe it's caught up to where God is, and God, the Bible said, is seated at the, at the throne in what we know to be the third heaven. The other heavens, I'll preach at another time, but there are three heavens. So what he's saying here is, I was caught up to the third heaven. I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell God, how that he was caught up into paradise and he heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. In other words, what the original writing says is, there are no words to describe 
the bliss and the blessing of what I saw in my visit to the third heaven. What about that? I saw things, and there's not any words in my vocabulary. There's not any words in the English language that would describe what I saw there. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Glory in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And now he goes into this other situation of being exalted because of a spiritual manifestation. I want to tell you, there is nothing more blessed than to be used of God. There is nothing more rewarding, there is nothing more satisfying to know that God used you to do something for glory of his name and the glory of his person. There's nothing, there's no feeling that can come to you that is more joyful than knowing that you did something under the will of God that was a blessing and gave glory to God. That's a wonderful thing. But there is a possibility also among extremely talented and gifted individuals that once they feel the enablement of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they sometimes feel as if they themselves are somewhat special. I got a that's right, no God. No amens. You don't know anybody that ever got exalted because I had a woman tell me one time, she said, you know, I've been seeking for the spiritual gifts. And said, I've already got five of them in my right hand. When I get those other four on my left hand, I'm going to go full time. When the Bible says, Randy, that the gifts are not the private possession of anybody. But the Lord giveth them severally as he will. They're the, they're the church. They're the church's possession. They're not the private possession of anybody. And you don't use the gift. The gift uses you is the way that goes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And he says, lest I should be exalted above measure, lest I fall in that trap, lest I get in that snare, there was given to me, given to me. Who is the giver? God is the giver. The Bible said, God giveth us all things richly to enjoy. So God is the giver. Don't get this messed up. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of these revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, that's when I am made strong. Glory to God. Now, what is Paul saying here? He is saying that there are things that are in my life because God put them there. There are situations, circumstances, and events 
in my life that are there because God put them there. There are lessons for me to learn. There is discipleship that I've got to submit to. There is maturity that I need to achieve. There's growth that I need to experience. There's all kind of things that are in my life, and God has a purpose and a reason for every one of them. And he says, lest I should be exalted above measure, and people tend to worship me instead of worshiping the God I preach. And that, that happens to folks. I, I'm sorry to say to you, that happens to folks. And Paul is saying, God loved me enough that he put a regulator on my esteem. Boy, you're quiet today. Debbie says you're listening when you do that. A regulator on my evaluation of myself. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Exalted by whom? Somebody else? No, me and my own eyes. When a man thinketh himself to be something, when he is, what'd you say? Nothing. He deceiveth himself. So Paul says, this gift that is in my heart, in my life, to preach this gospel, to establish churches, and to do the work of ministry, God gave me that, but he also put a regulator on that. In the previous chapter, he talks about his back being beaten with rods, and he talks about 39 stripes. Three times I received 39 stripes, save one. I've been in perils of the sea, afloat after shipwreck a day and a half in the sea. But he says, probably the worst of them all, he said, I was in peril among false brethren. Now, what could he be talking about, the peril of false brethren? He says it later in the chapter, he said, apostles who say they are apostles, but they're not really apostles. Wow. The problem was this thing of Judaizing. For every time Paul would start a church in a town, there would be a contingency from Jerusalem that would come to negate everything that he did while he was there and to spread another, another gospel. Somebody say another gospel. Another gospel. To replace what Paul preached and to make the message more Jewish and more Judaized. In other words, yes, Jesus uh, is a Savior, and we accept him as the Messiah, but you still got to keep these laws, and you still got to observe the Sabbath, and you still got to do the ceremonial ritual things. You still got to do the Feast of Tabernacles, and you still got to have the shawl and 365 tassels. You got to do all of that stuff because you can't be Christian unless you've got this Jewish background and you got to do all these things. And oh, yes, you got to be circumcised on the eighth day or you just can't have this salvation. Now, we're willing to accept you under certain conditions. 
And Paul said, there are no conditions. You're either saved or you're not. The blood of Jesus either did the work for you or it didn't. You either called on the name of the Lord or you didn't. You either asked him to forgive you for your sins or you didn't. You either accepted him as Savior and Lord or you didn't. It's not about law-keeping and food restraints. It's not about, not about feast days. It's about knowing Jesus. And if you've accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, then that's sufficient, and your name is in the book, and you're on your way to heaven. Well, give God some praise. Second Corinthians, the 26th verse of that 11th chapter, he says, In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Wow. All of that, he said, is part of this process. And he said, what was given to me was a messenger that was sent to oppose me in ministry. Now, it's true you've got a, a guardian angel. The Bible said God has sent his angels to guard you lest you dash your foot against the stone. God has given us protective angels. The Bible tells us that the angels of the Lord encamp around about those that love and fear him. The Bible says there are angels on assignment. Glory to God, and I believe there's an angel for harvest. I believe there's an angel for you and your family. I believe there's an angel for every one of us, amen, that watches over us and cares for us. But there are some things that God has put in our life that are there for our benefit and for our blessing. Because as long as Paul was fighting that battle and was going through that difficulty, he was praying, praying, when he realized the sharpness of the thorn and he realized the, the sting of the lash and he understood about the blows. Buffeting is a word that if I was to tell you the Greek for it, it would be Greek to you. The word means to deliver, to beat upon the brow and to strike around the head. Why does the devil attack my head? Buddy, he could deliver one shot in the chest and get it done. Why does he want to beat on my head? Why does he want to keep on? Buffet means blow after blow. It, in fact, it's active future tense, present future tense. What it means is that it's continuous action. It means that it doesn't stop. It just keeps on going. Every morning, buffeting. Every night, buffeting. Everywhere I go, buffeting. When I lay down, buffeting. When I get up, buffeting. When I'm asleep, buffeting. When I'm eating dinner, buffeting. It's that pressure that you live under. It's that 
that worry, that dread, that fear, and that, that doubt. And Paul said, brother, when I first felt that, hey, let me tell you what thorn is. It comes from a word that means stake, wooden stake. A stake, the definition says, to impale someone. Y'all know about the barbarian that was called the, the impaler, don't you? That impaled people up on sticks. A thorn here, the original word means a, a stake. Have you ever felt like your head was just beat up and you felt like you were hanging on a, on a stake? And he said, when I felt that, when I experienced that, when I went through that, I immediately hit my knees. It drove me to my knees. Brother, when it put me on my face before God, I cried out to God. I said, oh, God, take this thing away from me, God. In Jesus' name, deliver me from this thorn and deliver me from this oppression and this persecution and all the things that go up from that messenger. And he said, God didn't answer. So I went back to my prayer closet and I got down on my knees and I said, oh God, in Jesus' name, you know how I'm suffering with this. In Jesus' name, help me, oh God, right now. Deliver me. Take that thorn away and get rid of that messenger. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Nothing comes to you but what at first has to pass by me. And I will not allow anything to happen to you that you cannot handle and bear. And in every temptation, I will make a way for your escape. Every time the devil thinks he's got you pinned up, every time the devil thinks he's got you handcuffed, every time it looks like you're going down, you'll hear something say, this way, and I will make a way for your escape. I will not allow the arrow that flies by night nor the dark that flies by day I will not allow evil to come nigh thy dwelling. Yes, there's a messenger of Satan. Yes, there's a thorn. Yes, there's all kinds of things going on, and all hell is breaking loose, but I've made a way for your escape, and my grace is sufficient for you. You're going to make it to the other side of this thing. You're going through. I'm committed to getting you there, and if you'll just trust in me, my grace is sufficient and it will uphold you and strengthen you and encourage you in times of great difficulty. Well, give God some real good praise. Let me close. Come on, Olivia. When Paul was about to end his earthliness. Brother, I've got, I'm on page one. 
There's nine of them laying up there. Somebody told me, Pastor, you can take one sentence and one scripture and preach a week. Probably could. I wanted to talk about people that wouldn't let their culture change them. Paul just wouldn't allow his surroundings to change him. I wanted to tell you about those Hebrew boys. What were their names? You're guessing? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But do you know what? That wasn't their name. That was their Babylonian name. That was what their culture labeled them. Their real name was Hananiah. You know what Hananiah means? God is gracious. You know what the second one's name was? Mushael. What'd they change his name to, Pastor? Meshach. What does Mushael mean, Pastor? It means as God is, so am I. What'd they change his name to? Name him Meshach. It means as the moon god is, Aku, so am I. What'd they do? Take the God out of his life and put our God in his life. We're going to call you from now on Meshach. That means you're supposed to be like our God, our pagan God. No, he's not the pagan. He's the mood God. That's what he is. The moon God of the Abel Babylonians. Your name says that God is the same as you. But we're going to give you a name that our God is the same as you. And Abednego, that wasn't his. That, that name means Marduk is Lord, one of their pagan deities. What was his name? Azariah. It means God has blessed. So God has blessed, as God is, so am I. And God is gracious, got their names changed. But did they change? I said, did they change? No, they didn't change. Glory to God. What happened, Pastor? They kept on being God is gracious. As God is, so am I. God has blessed. You ain't going to change me from that. You'd like to throw that in the fire and burn that up, wouldn't you? You'd like to burn up my name. You'd like to wipe out my past. You'd like to scratch out who I belong to and who I trust in. You'd like to do away with and annihilate what is the Lord of my life. And you may change my name on a certificate somewhere. Down at the courthouse, you may say, I've got a new name, but in my heart, I'll know my name. My name is God is gracious. My name is God hath provided. My name is as God is, so am I. Praise God. Hallelujah. I won't let culture change me. And I want to tell you that's the spirit we need to have right now. Because I will not allow a secular, God-hating culture to change me. 
I will not allow a culture that makes fun of people who pray and worship and sing spiritual songs. I will not allow that culture change me. No, sir. I'm going to keep right on being God is gracious. God hath provided. God is as I am. Hallelujah. I'm going to keep that. Well, will you have to go in a furnace for saying that? Yeah. Yeah. Will you get thrown in a furnace? Will you be hated? Will people run around watching you trying to find something against you? Yeah. Yeah, it's that thorn. It's that messenger. But what will God do when they arrest you? Nebuchadnezzar the second come in and he said, we're going to put them in that fiery furnace. Give me seven men that'll do it. Get that things heated up. We're going to, we're going to really show these Hebrews, you can't mess with us. And the seven men that threw them in the furnace was slain and killed because the fire was so hot. But you know what? When they threw them in that fiery furnace, they were walking about on those live coals with flames flying all around them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Hey, did we not put three in that furnace? Yes, O king, we put three in the furnace. Lo, I see four. And the fourth one is like unto the Son of God. Hallelujah. I want to tell you, there may be a thorn. There may be a messenger of Satan. There may be all kind of hell breaking loose. But I want to tell you, if you'll just remember that God is gracious and God has provided, and as God is, so am I, then the fire can't burn you and the flood can't overflow you. Whoever you are in God, if you'll just believe that God is, God will do his part. God will do his part. God will do his part. Stand with me all over the house. God will do his part. 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 He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Trust that. Believe that. Believe that. It'll take you through the tough times. It'll take you through difficulty. It'll take you through those hardships. Oh, yes, it will. I know it whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able. I'm persuaded that he's able. I'm persuaded that he's able. I'm persuaded that he is able. Don't you know God is able? My God, our God is able. He's able. He's able, God is able to carry your burden. Don't you know God is able? He'll be a friend to the friendless, a mother to the motherless, a father to the fatherless. He's joy in your sorrow. He's able, able able to carry you through. Oh, yes, he is. Thank you, God, for being with us this morning. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that's in this house. And I ask you to go home with us now, O oh Lord, as we depart from this place of worship to become salt and earth in this earth and light in this earth. 
Touch us, O Lord, and ignite your church with that flame and that evangelism and that revival that we crave so much. Go with our folks and keep them safe from harm and danger. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.